So you'd have to treat 400 to prevent one cardiovascular event. Statins are the most commonly used drug in the UK. Now, that's in line with much of the guidance around their usage. And that usage is uncontroversial when we know someone has cardiovascular disease. But when it comes to primary prevention, then the lower limits of their usage are being questioned here in the BMJ and elsewhere. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ, and to discuss that, I'm joined by Paula Byrne, who is a health services researcher and who's just finished her PhD on statins and primary prevention as a Sphere Scholar at the National University of Ireland, Galway. Paula, thanks very much for taking some time to talk to us on the podcast. Thank you, Duncan. Delighted to talk to you. Now, everything we're going to talk about here is kind of set out in this new analysis that's just been published on bmj.com. What was it that made you decide to write about that now? Um, Well, I suppose I wanted to look at statins in primary prevention uh, from many different angles. I thought that I couldn't get the full story, you know, without doing several different analyses from different perspectives and try to put the pieces of the jigsaw together. And so... We initially started, when I started my PhD, I thought, well, the first thing that we need to know is who is using statins and why are they using them? Um, so to that end, our my first analysis was, was looking at a group of older adults in Ireland. Um, I knew that statins in primary prevention were quite controversial, but I didn't, I didn't really know why or if there was, if that was a valid worry or concern. So the first thing then was looking at this group of older adults in Ireland in um, a database called TILDA, the, the Longitudinal Study on Aging in Ireland. And I broke down um, the participants that we had in that database, I broke them down into a kind of hierarchy of, of diagnostics. So people who had 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 um, cardiovascular disease previously could be separated out from those that had not. And in this way, um, I found that of those over 50s, about 30 percent were, were currently using statins. But of that 30%, the vast majority, almost two thirds were in the primary prevention category. So that said to me, we we need to be really uh, clear on the benefits of statins if so many people who are taking statins do so for primary prevention. And it, it was quite surprising to us also that there was a, a large difference between men and women. So of the women who were taking statins, nearly three quarters were uh, primary prevention people compared to just over half of the men who were taking statins. So that was kind of the first piece of work that we did to, to, to figure out who's using them and why are they using them. Now, I hadn't quite appreciated that the population size that was eligible for statins had so massively changed in the last 30 years. Yes. So so this was our, our next logical step was kind of thinking, well, ha- has that always been the case? How has I had read, you know, um, 
some controversies about recent changes in in guidelines, you know, both in the UK and in the US, as well as the European guidelines, uh, which I concentrated on. Um, so I thought that rather than just looking at what has happened recently, why not go right back? Um, I suppose as part of my PhD as well, I was also looking at, at kind of the literature around the idea of medicalization. And that literature goes back quite some time, back into the 50s, in fact. So I kind of wondered, could you see this pattern over time in, in the European guidelines? Um, as, and guidelines have been kind of identified as a driver of medicalization. Most clinical guidelines will expand the use of a medicine or a treatment or a diagnosis in people over time. Um, we've seen that from other, uh, other studies. So I looked back over the European guidelines. I used the TILDA database. So I had the same sample of people. Um, and I applied the criteria from 1987 up to 2016. There were seven different uh, clinical guidelines over that time. Um, and I looked at what proportion of this database of over 50s would be eligible for statins in 1987, in 1994, and all the way up to 2016. So we found that uh, in 1987, about 8% of this group of over 50s would be eligible, potentially eligible for statins, um, according to the European guidelines. And by 2016, 61% of the same group would be eligible, which is a huge increase in. Now, I have to emphasize that this is potentially eligible. Yes. We don't know if a person goes to their doctor, their doctor quite possibly will say to uh, that person, look, you need to lose weight, you need to stop smoking, you need to walk. So we're, we're not saying that all of these people would have been prescribed statins. We're saying that this is potentially um, the, the proportion that would be eligible for statins according to European guidelines. And with each of those guideline changes that you looked at there, um, was each time that they were revised and that was kind of just being thrown wider and wider uh, in a steady sort of way or were there sort of big jumps? Yeah, pretty steady. So 87 was 8%, 94 was 10%, a jump then to 20% in 1998. That's probably the, the largest jump. And then from 2007, to 2012, it went from 41 to 62%. So that's a big jump, obviously. Mm. And in fact, the last guidelines from 2012 to 2016 have fallen, the eligibility has fallen ever so slightly by about 1%. So that, yeah, so you, I suppose you could see two jumps between 94 and 98 and 2007 and 2012 was the biggest jump in eligibility. So yeah, that's what's changed. And we want any change within a guideline to be based on good evidence. And that's something else that you've been doing, looking at the evidence underlying some of these changes. Yes, yes. So we so we have. So the, the next question, the next logical question is, if you are prescribing statins for such a lar large proportion of, of, of the, the people who are taking statins are for primary prevention. What is the evidence that really supports that? And we 
when we went to look at the evidence, we found that there was very little um, uh, that was separating out primary and secondary prevention. So a lot of systematic reviews are out there, but you'll always have a proportion of secondary, even if they're called primary prevention, uh, you'll have a proportion of secondary prevention people in there, even with, you know, very good studies. And and I'm not criticizing them, but very good studies like the Cochrane reviews of uh, statins. Uh, they allowed up to 10% of um, secondary prevention people into their analyses. So what I thought was, well, can you actually pull out purely primary prevention data anywhere? Um, and with that in mind, we uh, I did an overview of systematic reviews, which is a review of a review of. of <laughs> <laughs> um, and we found three systematic reviews that we could pull data out of. One, which was actually two C two CTT analyses that we called one. Uh, one study because it was from the same data, the same trials, etc. And there, there was a certain number of outcomes that were reported in only uh, people in primary prevention, so those without vascular disease. So we could pull out those data from CTT. There was a systematic review uh, by Mora that looked at women only in primary prevention. And then we had another that was uh, from Ray et al, um, that we could pull out some primary prevention data as well. So um, what? So that was only three out of all the systematic reviews that are out there that we could actually pull out purely exclusively primary prevention data on. And it seems surprising that even say the Cochrane collaboration would allow this mix of a little bit of secondary prevention data into those analyses. Do you know why they've done that? Is that just a sort of pragmatic thing? I don't I don't know why that is. It probably is pragmatic. And I couldn't say that it is statistically going to make a massive difference if you allow 10%. I don't know that. But I just thought to be really clear, let's see what's there in exclusively primary prevention data. Mm. And I suppose it is important because the gains in life expectancy we are talking about here are potentially pretty small for someone who's at the sort of bottom end of the, the risk scale that would, you know, make them eligible for a primary prevention. Yes. Now, that is, that's not something that we looked at. You know, I, there have been some very nice studies of postponement of death by statin use. Um, I saw one recently um, by Hansen. Um, I'm not sure what the, oh, it was um, a Journal of General Internal Medicine. Um, so for primary prevention, they looked, at, they did a meta-analysis of 16 trials. And for primary prevention, you had a postponement of death by 10 days, they estimated, you know, but but that that's not actually something that we looked at ourselves. We just looked at the relative risk reductions in uh, various outcomes that were reported in these three three systematic reviews. So we had outcomes for all-cause mortality, vascular and non-vascular deaths, and then what were called major coronary events and major vascular events and total CVDs, CVDs which are what we call composite outcomes, those last three. And that composite outcomes cause problems in themselves by their very nature. But I don't know if that's too much detail, but, um, you know, a composite outcome could be a mixture of um, 
pretty serious things like myocardial infarction, but could also include something like unstable angina. And they could all be put together under the title of major coronary events or major vascular events or whatever. So unless you can actually tease out the parts of a composite outcome, they can be difficult to interpret in terms of, you know, well, how relevant are they to the patient? Is is it, it, do, a, a patient is clearly going to be very concerned about having a heart attack. They might be less concerned about having angina, you know, so that's a kind of side argument. Mm. And I mean, it's really hard looking at this at an individual level when it comes to these, you know, small tweaks in risk. Um, given as well, you know, the uncertainty. But we do know that at a population level that statins as primary prevention will reduce cardiovascular events. Um, obviously, that's at a population level. So it's really useful to think about numbers needed to treat when it comes to that. Do we know what the number needed to treat for those different sort of stratified risk groups are? Um. Well, it's not something that, um, so, so we have in our, uh, in one of our papers, we have looked at the NNTs. So going back to the guidelines and how they have increased the proportion of people uh, that are eligible for statins over time. What we also did in that paper was look at, well, if you took the lowest risk person who is now eligible for statins, What's the NNT? How many of those people would you have to treat to prevent one um, adverse event? So we looked at uh, the earliest we could calculate that from was were, were the clinical guidelines in 1994. Mm -hmm. And at that time, the lowest risk person uh, would have had an NNT of 40. So you would have treated 40 people uh, to prevent um, one cardiovascular event. And, and that's a reasonable NNT. I think, you know, doctors and patients might find that acceptable. But by 2016, if we looked at the lowest risk person that could possibly be eligible for statins in 2016, you would have to treat 400 of them. Uh, the NNT is 400. So you'd have to treat 400 to prevent one cardiovascular event. So societally, if you're looking at it from that perspective, and if you're looking at the state investing in statins, then you're getting far less bang for your buck in 2016 than you were in 1994. Now, costs, of course, are a separate issue and, and the costs of statins have fallen hugely. So that's it. You know, it's not as simple as 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 justifying the cost. But is, you know, it's still, you're still, the state is still spending money on, in, a, in large proportions on, on, on this medicine. And mm. can you justify that from a, a resource allocation point of view? Mm. And when it comes to, to benefit as well, obviously that's happening at this, this population level and potentially with one in 400 people at that level. Um, but when it comes to harm, that's actually experienced by the individual. Uh, and that's something else that the data, again, is a bit unsure about. We don't know exactly what level of harm statins actually create um, at the moment. So I think it would be really important that the data on harm were made available 
to independent analysis. Um, we do know from studies produced by the CTT group, um, Collins et al., for example, have reported that if you treated 10,000 patients for five years, you would cause about five cases of myopathy, that's muscle pain, 50 to 100 cases, new cases of diabetes, and between five and 10 hemorrhagic strokes. Now, the problem with that is that the definition of myopathy may be quite a high bar for diagnosing muscle symptoms among real people who may simply define myopathy as any muscle symptom. And there's observational data out there to su suggest that the frequency of statin myopathy is higher. So, for example, there's an observational study by Butner et al. And if you compare that study with Collins, uh, there's a, if Collins is reporting five cases of myopathy per 10,000, and if you extrapolate what Butner reports, he would be reporting about 530 cases per 10,000. So the estimates vary by a factor of 100 um, between the observational study and, and the, uh, the data from CTT. So we, we don't really know, first of all, we don't have the data. And secondly, it is important that what what a person thinks is muscle pain <laughs> is muscle pain, I suppose, mm. you know. Um, so we it, it would be really helpful if we had access to those data, because then the patient sitting in front of the doctor can make an informed decision based on their absolute risk, their own values, how much they value that absolute risk reduction and uh, the potential for harms from statins. So. Paula, what you've done in this interview is sketch out this sort of picture with a lot of uncertainty about the efficacy, especially when it comes to people um, who are at low risk of, of cardiovascular disease. Um, and we also have uncertainty about the harms associated with statins. Again, at the lower end of the scale, those more mild harms. So what you've said is that independent scrutiny of the data is one thing that needs to happen. Um, but that's just existing data. So what else do you think needs to be done to really you know, tie this down, um, tie down the evidence in this? I think that if we could have trials or, uh, or even analyses, probably trials of, of low-risk people only and primary prevention only, and, and that we had good numbers in subgroups, you know, that you had good numbers in a, in a study that, you know, for example, in women or older people, that you, ha that you had studies that were um, uh, sufficiently powered to look at those subgroups of people and have really solid data on on the effects of statins on those subgroups that would be really helpful in addition to having the evidence on harms um, i think also that communicating the uncertainty and that is there for primary prevention would kind of take pressure off arguably take pressure off gps in terms of prescribing if the gp is you know able to communicate to a patient, look, this is the estimate, but there is an uncertainty around the estimate of how much you would reduce your risk. And if, if it would kind of empower both the doctors and the patients, if there was 
more acceptance of the uncertainty. I think uh, that the debate has become very polarized and people are frightened to stake a position on it almost. Um, whereas I think if we're really honest and say this is what this is the best of the evidence we have at present, this is the best we can do, and this is the best I can as a doctor um, advise you as a patient. Um, so that would be part of it too, I think. Well, Paula, thanks uh, again for coming on to the podcast and talking to us about that. That's really interesting. And that article, Statins for the Primary Prevention of Cardiovascular Disease, is now available on bmj.com. That's it for this episode. We'll be back next week with more evidence. And coming up soon will be Talk Evidence, our special monthly podcast where we talk about all things EBM. So you can have a look on bmj.com slash podcast to find all of those if evidence is something that you care about. You can also go on to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from, really, and find all of our back catalogue there. It's currently all available for free. So until next time, I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thank you very much for listening.